0: Welcome to California State of Mind, a new podcast from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. So, this episode is coming out on Friday, and everyone is focused on the presidential race. At this point, it's looking more and more like Joe Biden will come out on top there, but it's still not official as we're talking here on Friday morning. It's crazy that it's taken this long and we still don't have a clear winner. But we knew this was a possibility this year with so many Americans voting by mail.
1: It's not that we haven't waited before. This just seems so much more amped up. I'm thinking about the armed protesters in Arizona, that kind of thing that we haven't really seen
0: before, and that they definitely did not get treated the way other kinds of protesters are treated in this country. And it is very concerning to see these election workers Um, Having to be escorted from the building when they're just trying to do their jobs, count the votes. It's when they have to be escorted by sheriff's deputies, it's not a good look. But, Nicole, let's bring it back to
1: California. We've got a lot going on here.
0: Yeah, we had a lot of really interesting issues on the ballot this year with 12 propositions. Many of these have been decided by now, but there are one or two that are still really close, As we're talking now on Friday, there have been more than 12 million ballots counted and around 4 million left to count.
1: Yeah, the results on the propositions are mixed. There are some interesting patterns we've noticed. And what do the results of these races tell us about who we are as Californians?
0: Right. I think that's one of the really interesting things about propositions is— California is a solidly blue state when it comes to candidates. But when certain issues are on the ballot, the results become a lot more nuanced, and they also vary from region to region. Um, I was having a great time the other night looking at uh, county-level results of these ballot propositions. I, I was trying to unwind after a couple crazy days of covering the election, and I started out doing a puzzle this is so nerdy, Elizabeth. <laughs> the puzzle <laughs> at this point started to stress me out. And in, I put it away and I picked up my laptop and I actually found myself more relaxed by looking at the county level results of ballot <laughs> propositions. I know that's like the nerdiest thing ever. <laughs>
1: that is going down a rabbit hole, Nicole. But I'm not surprised that you found such variations county by county. I think we like to paint California with that solid blue brush, right? But there are a lot of red counties, we've talked about this before, and a lot of people who swing, especially on social issues, criminal justice, definitely tax issues. So the propositions often show us so much more about who Californians are as opposed to the big damn GOP races, where people tend to just go with their party.
0: Exactly, and that is really interesting. So we're gonna talk all about that this episode. We're doing something different
1: this week for the podcast since it's election week. On Thursday, we visited with a variety of guests, kind of hard to keep track, but stick with us. First up was Lauren Hepler with Matters.
0: Lauren is gonna talk with us about one of the most crucial ballot results, Proposition 22, and let's just dive right into it. Lauren, welcome to California State of Mind.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So Proposition 22 was a big one, the most expensive proposition in state history. This is where Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, all these Silicon Valley gig companies tried to skirt the state's labor laws. It became a big battle over whether to classify these drivers as employees or independent contractors. So um, tell us, first of all, what happened here?
2: Yeah, you're right. This was an incredibly expensive campaign. The total ended up clocking in at more than $220 million, which was way above the totals that we saw in past campaigns that were in like the $150 million range. And the big question here, like you alluded to, was whether the gig companies would have to continue to be bound by California's new law. That was the one that said gig workers like other types of contractors and freelancers should be considered employees and eligible for things like minimum wage, overtime pay, employer-sponsored health care, paid sick leave. And Prop 22 completely changes that. It proposes a new framework that the gig companies say is more appropriate for untraditional jobs where workers can kind of log on and log off. There's not a set schedule. And what it says is we'll guarantee drivers 120 percent of minimum wage and let them accrue some healthcare subsidies. But that's all based on something called engaged time or when the drivers actually have a passenger or an order in the car. And that doesn't include about 30 percent of the time that they typically spend waiting for rides or orders.
1: Lawrence race was positioned as a major battle over the future of work which you've been talking about here. Are unions conceding this now or is there a chance that this isn't the last we'll hear on the contractor versus employee issue?
2: It's a very interesting question. I will say I've gotten a lot of statements and interviews in the last couple of days from labor groups saying this isn't over. This is far from over. So it's definitely not kind of a cut and dry concession at this point. As to what types of challenges we might see, that's a little unclear. Um, I talked to a labor lawyer and he said a few things being considered are a state court challenge to maybe go up against some things in Prop 22, like a ban on collective bargaining, which obviously unions don't don't like. And at the federal level, this is another one where the way the White House swings could be very, very consequential. We've already seen gig companies like Uber successfully lobby the Trump administration, but labor groups are saying there's a chance under a Biden administration that they could get some help from the Department of Labor.
0: Hmm. Lauren, we saw a huge infusion of big tech money in this race, like you mentioned. It it shattered the campaign spending records. Um, What does the outcome on this race tell us about that strategy, Um, you know, and these companies spending a lot of money and, and that strategy going forward?
2: Yeah. So at the end of the day, gig companies, Uber, Lyft, Instacart and DoorDash, Uh, pumped about two hundred and six million dollars into this race. And it was a big margin of victory. Um, So it's a question that I've definitely been getting a lot in recent days. Well, what does this mean for an industry like tobacco that, you know, hasn't been happy with how California's super democratic legislature is handling their industry? Will they go back to voters? I think that's definitely an open question that our political reporters are definitely already looking at as well.
1: Lauren, there were big regional vote differences, though, right? This failed in North Coast, Bay Area, but it passed everywhere else. So why are we seeing those kinds of differences across the state?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it really underscores some Big areas of divergence we've seen within drivers themselves in this campaign. And it also points to how polarized the economy is in different parts of the state. Um, So I talked to a young driver. Her name's Hope Alexandra Slayson. She's 28 years old and down in the Santa Barbara area. And when she started driving for Uber and Lyft in 2018, she was living in a storage unit, unhoused. Um, She was making, but all of a sudden she said with the, the gig company, she started making. 20, 30 bucks an hour. And she said, quote, 100% of the reason she's housed today is because of the income from these services. And that type of argument has really resonated um, in areas where uh, jobs are scarce. And then it's also been interesting to see that in some of the tech strongholds like the Bay Area, Prop 22 didn't do very well. And you can imagine that that's where maybe some of the labor arguments that this is bad for worker stability. It's bad for sort of um, the erosion of stable middle class jobs, those types of arguments might have carried more weight. And I will say I've talked to drivers in other areas like the Bay Area, Erica Maghetto being one of them, who said she's feeling extremely vulnerable after this shift towards continuing to be classified as a contractor. And the fear there is that gig workers are now going to be, she said, classified as essentially second class workers. Um, so I think we'll continue to hear a lot of conversation about that.
0: Well, I wanted to talk about that because hanging over this election fight is the pandemic and, and all of this economic uncertainty. How is Proposition 22 going to impact that conversation about the workers' safety net in California and, and nationally?
2: Yeah, you know, it was really interesting, too, because one of the other things I started to see Monday, Tuesday was a lot of drivers in other places, like one of them being Isabel Rodriguez, a Lyft and DoorDash driver in the Washington, D.C. area who said she was paying really, really close attention to what was happening in California because it seemed like kind of a preview of her own fate. And in her case, she's living in her car outside of Uh, Reagan National Airport in the DC area. Um, And she just said, I feel like if we don't stop these companies in California, this is what's going to happen elsewhere. Um, So she was very upset about the way that Proposition 22 ended up breaking. You can see drivers on the other side who are much more committed to this argument about flexibility and being sure that they'll be able to log on and log off or have this kind of quick cash opportunity, being much more excited about Prop 22 now becoming the law of the land. Um, So again, this is one where there's not a lot of people that are super neutral on the issue. You've got people who are extremely divided on one side or the other, which could continue to be the case if we see unemployment, you know, in the neighborhood where it's been around 11 percent.
1: Well, Lauren, thank you for being with us today. This is super interesting, and I think that it's probably not something that we're done talking about. So thanks again.
2: Definitely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So another issue on the ballot this year was criminal justice. There were actually three ballot measures this year,
1: and I think only one passed. Again, we ask... What does this tell us about the movement for racial justice and criminal justice reform in California?
0: So, joining us now to explore all of this is Baronda Lyons. She covers criminal justice with Cal Matters. Hey, Baronda. Hi, Nicole.
3: Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us.
0: Let's recap and get everybody up to speed first. Can you just tell us about the propositions that were dealing with criminal justice and, and how did they do with voters?
3: So, we had Prop 17, which was about parolees voting and voters approved that. You have Prop 20, which would have rolled back some of the um, reforms that were implemented with Prop 47 and 57 about five years ago, and voters overwhelmingly rejected those changes. And then you had Prop 25, which would have eliminated uh, cash bail, and voters rejected that. So what you're seeing is California voters don't want to sort of go back to where they where we were as a state with the lock them up approach and throw them throw away the key. I think now voters are trying to figure out what does criminal justice reform look like in the long term? And they're saying, hey, let's let's keep going the way we're going. Rhonda, let's talk about
1: Prop 25 for a second, the one that was going to end cash bail. That was a referendum on a law the legislature passed in 2018, and now it's not going to go into effect. So does this say anything about how lawmakers feel about criminal justice reform versus how
3: voters feel about it? Well, when the law passed back in 2018, it was was quite contentious. Uh, Everyone wasn't on the same page. You had um, people who wanted to abolish cash bail. And then you had the bail industry. And in the end, the bill got no support from the people who wanted to abolish cash bail, nor a large swath of the bail industry. So you ended up with these groups that are on opposite ends sort of going against Prop 25. And so it's hard to tell exactly if voters rejected Prop 25 because they want to keep cash bail or if they rejected Prop 25 because they think that the alternative of eliminating Prop 25 or the recommendation for how to eliminate uh, cash bail would have been racist in classes. So it's a, it's a mixed bag with that one. It's hard to tell exactly what it means.
0: Hanging over this conversation this year is this racial justice movement. You know, all the protests that happened this summer, the death of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter. Um, How did that factor into some of these races, if at all, this year?
3: I think from a state level, it's hard to really tell. I've had some people say that the cash bail was an indicator that voters didn't want to sort of continue down or go down a path of using an algorithm to determine whether people were free or not. And because of that, I've had people who say that that's because of the George Floyd protests, but it's hard to really tell. What's pretty interesting, though, is what happened outside of sort of the state ballot measures and what happened sort of locally at different levels. So in San Francisco, voters passed the measure to increase oversight for the sheriff's department. In Los Angeles, the DA's office, the sort of moderate District attorney was it looks like she's going to be uh, removed and replaced with former San Francisco District Attorney George Gassion, who is a progressive D.A. And then also in Los Angeles, there was a reallocation of some state funds from the police budget to different social services. So
1: do you think that the difference is because of the protests or is there also just looking at what the politics are in those counties?
3: it's hard to say. I mean, this year has just been so 2020 is just 2020. So it's really hard to make that definitive. This is why, or this is why not you can say that it contributed to it. But I mean, if you think about it, San Francisco is a liberal city. It's a liberal County compared to other places throughout the country. I think Los Angeles, um, Jackie Lacey, uh, you know, when George Floyd was was killed, um, then people started looking and saying, oh, well, you know, uh, she hasn't prosecuted any um, law enforcement who have killed or shot unarmed civilians since she was elected. So then that brings about another question where people are trying to figure out, OK, so how can we address this? And then, um, uh, you know, Gascon got the approval or the um the uh, endorsement by Mayor Garcetti, so that shifted the conversation a bit. Um, so I think that yes, George Floyd protests had a huge impact, but then it's hard—it's still California, so you know it's hard to to really say exactly how large that was.
0: Well, since that was a referendum on a law that the legislature passed, do you have any idea what's next for lawmakers? I mean, they've done quite a bit on this issue the last few years. Um, Is there a path forward or more appetite to keep going after this
3: defeat? Based on my reporting, I think that there may be some appetite to sort of address at some point some of the issues. But one thing to remember is that the legislature had all of these Bills that came out of the George Floyd protests that really didn't go anywhere. One thing that has been clear based on interviews and talking with different people that work at the Capitol is that there will be a conversation around decertifying police in California. And that will be a very uh, fluid conversation. What, What does that mean? How to go about it? And then who will these unions or will it be advocates and how will you mesh that together to actually get some policy forward that can actually be implemented and be passed and then be signed by the governor.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your reporting and your expertise with us, Baronda. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: You know, we can't have this conversation about ballot propositions without talking about all of the money behind them. Um, all of those dollars that go into putting these issues on the ballot and how much that spending has increased over the years.
0: Yeah, we touched on this a couple weeks ago, but we're going to dive into it even more this week with Laurel Rosenhall and Ben Christopher from CalMatters. Hey. Hi, guys. Hey. Okay, so we asked Lauren this earlier in the show, but Prop 22, uh, we have to talk about this huge amount of money that these tech companies spent on this measure. Can we expect to see this much money from large companies shelling out on these issues in the future?
4: I would say that the amount of dollars, you know, 200 million dollars smashing records I mean I don't think there's a ton of industries that can pour that amount of money. But the overall strategy in terms of just spend some millions of dollars to to override a decision you didn't like, I think we will absolutely see more of that. And the results of the ballot measures um, this week were, you know, very favorable for corporations that don't like progressive policies coming out of the legislature.
5: You know, if you look at the second most expensive ballot measure this year, Prop 15, um, which on both sides, I think there was... Uh, over $150 million raised, that actually puts it in the top 10 uh, most expensive ballot campaigns uh, in California history as well. And so clearly this was a very expensive year, even if you look aside Prop 22, which is obviously uh, the girl in the room. Uh, and again, just sort of given the outcomes we're seeing that a lot of the big spenders sort of got their way, I don't see any indication uh, that the spending and the fundraising and just the size of the proposition Political industry in California is going to be shrinking anytime soon.
1: So, if you don't have that kind of big money, do you get to play in this arena anymore? not
4: every single thing on the ballot was a huge money issue we should point that out the issue of parolees getting the right to vote was not a very expensive campaign i think it was just what a million or two or something on the yes side and 0 dollars opposing it so you know that was that was not a super expensive campaign and that was successful on the other side you know affirmative action the the yes side um that was looking to overturned the ban on affirmative action, had a lot more money than the no side, but the no side seems to have won. So, you know, not everything is a perfect match between, you know, dollars and victory, but there definitely was a trend on measures that included, you know, some sort of financial stake for a corporate interest for a large business. They spent what it took to win.
0: So another sort of pattern that we see with these initiatives and how they're turning out, um, voters overturn the cash bail law. They also approve big changes to the labor laws through Prop 22. Uh, should we see this election as a sort of rebuke on the legislature and, and the big laws that they've spent the couple years passing?
4: You know, I would say yes, asterisk and the asterisk is all the money that we were just talking about. Right. So, yes, the 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 voters were pushing back on things that the legislature ha- has done. Um, on the other hand, the the campaigns were helped by this, you know, enormous spending in advertising. And so both of those factors are, are at play.
1: One of the things that we also noticed was there were a couple of repeat
5: propositions.
1: Why are we seeing these come back again? What is the point of that?
5: This year, we saw two, obviously, uh, pretty prominent examples. One was the dialysis, kidney dialysis regula- regulation regulation uh, measure Prop 23, which is Um, failing by, looks like a historically large margin. Um, And this was, you know, as Laurel has written, this is an issue that, it's a measure that was sponsored by uh, SEIU, UHW, it's a union. And one way to look at it is sort of as a bargaining tactic uh, with that union has introduced um, uh, to sort of put pressure on the two dialysis uh, company, private dialysis companies, DaVita and Fresenius Medical Care. Um, And so the fact that it failed, a similar measure failed in 2018, it's failing this year. Uh, I'm sure they're disappointed, but it's also to the extent that it's about forcing these companies to spend a lot of money, put a little pain on them. um, Perhaps that was also the point. And so, uh, you know, it's it's possible we might see something like this again. In terms of the um, rent control measure, which, again, looks like it's failing by about 20 points. Um, similar measure failed in 2018 by 20 points. Um, that's a, a, a measure that was uh, introduced and funded almost single-handedly, by one person in one organization, Michael Weinstein, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And so sure, yeah, we might see that one again too. A lot of this just reflects the fact that when policy is introduced uh, at the ballot box, the only way to change it is once again at the ballot box often. And so it just sort of the nature of the beast of California democracy that we're just going to kind of keep seeing these issues resurface over and over again. The
4: trend that I saw overwhelmingly is that voters, you know, took the more liberal stance on the criminal justice issues, but on most of the other questions on the ballot, they did not choose the the more sort of progressive side. They, you know, they seem to be sort of favoring sticking with Prop 13 and not going with a major um, tax increase on commercial property taxes. They rejected the idea of California becoming the you know, first state to have a no cash bail law. Um, they they rejected rent control for the second time in two elections. So I think that the electorate, though it is a solidly Democratic electorate, is not a super duper progressive electorate.
0: Any other trends that either of you noticed or uh, surprises maybe on the results of these um, ballot propositions this year?
5: Yeah, I mean, like Rhonda said, 2020 is very 2020. And so as much as we might like to take these what are still preliminary results and draw some big conclusions from them, I think it's really hard because this year is just such a one off in some ways. And so I think, you know, uh, reporters and also interest groups in the Capitol and politicians are going to be arguing about the implications of all of this for for months to come, I'm sure.
0: Well, Ben Christopher and Laurel Rosenhall, thanks so much for helping us make sense of some of these results, which we should note again, are still preliminary and will not be finalized for several weeks in California as we wait for all these votes to come in. Thank you. Thanks so much. Let's actually talk about Prop 15 now. This was one of the most watched things on the ballot this year, and it's also the closest. At the time we're recording this podcast, we still don't know what the outcome for Prop 15 is.
1: Right, Nicole, this is a big one because it links back to the sacred Prop 13 and making changes to it has been an upward battle for those who want to see property tax regulations change. But it was definitely one of the most watched measures, as you said, you know, by the folks who are watching these things.
0: That's a good point, because a lot of people are not as tuned in as we are. (laughs) So let's bring Ricardo
1: Cano to the podcast to join us to look at this issue. Hi, Ricardo.
6: Hi, Elizabeth.
1: So let's just dive right in. Voters seem to have not supported this, at least so far that's what it looks like right now. They haven't gone for the commercial property tax proposition that would have meant more money for schools. But do you think this was a vote against property taxes, or was it really about not funding schools? Because it seems like it could be a tax issue or an education issue.
6: Right. And, um, you know, we're still waiting to see what the final outcome of the measure is going to be. But, uh, you know, in the, in the months leading up to this, it really seemed to be a campaign centered more on, uh, you know, this sacred cow, as you mentioned, uh, making changes to Proposition 13 more than it was, uh, you know, this broader debate about school funding in the state. Um, When you listen to the opposition campaign, you know, a lot of their arguments were, you know, that this this measure was going to inadvertently hurt uh, small businesses at a time when many of them are struggling to scrape by. Um, And so that's really where kind of the crux of the debate was, Um, not to say that uh, schools wouldn't have benefited largely from this, um, you know, they would have gotten 40% of the, the uh, commercial property tax revenue generated from Prop 15. Uh, the legislative analyst's office uh, was projecting that this, was, that this could have raised upwards of $6.5 billion to uh, almost $12 billion for, for cities and schools.
0: I want to talk about schools because they did get less money from the state this year because we have this huge budget deficit because of the pandemic. But we're still in the pandemic, so it could be a slow recovery for the California economy. That could mean even less money for schools next year. How are they feeling with how things are looking for this proposition right now?
6: Nobody in the education community is going to turn their back on you know extra billions of dollars in funding but I think that there's a general realization here that the end point was never going to be uh, with Prop 15 when it comes to education finance in the state. Right now, you know, really not to be uh, a negative Ned here and, and sound the, the the alarms, but there are two kind of financial crises that schools are are going through right now. The more immediate one has to relate to how they're reopening schools physically. Uh, and, and just, you know, the issues around testing and protective equipment, um, who's going to pay for that? How will it be sustained that are really leading to some tense local debates across state? And then the second one is what's going to happen after this school year? Uh, the governor and the legislature uh, essentially have protected the, the funding uh, for schools this year through deferrals. But after the dust settles for you know, this school year, the state is looking at upwards of $11 billion uh, in deferrals that uh, that, that they're going to have to address.
0: Well, I want to ask about the tax side of this. Um, because we're in a pandemic, because we're in an economic recession, I think the opponents of Prop 15 hammered really hard that message of this would raise taxes on businesses and those costs would be pushed onto consumers. Do you... Do we have any idea how big of a role that played? You know, were people more unwilling to raise taxes in a recession?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you saw um, kind of play out in this campaign where the opposition uh, really kind of tried to play to that sense of fear that um, a lot of people are feeling right now, just the, the economic uncertainty of things. Um, And uh, it's tough to say how that translates to um, sentiments uh, with regards to education funding. Um, But that's uh, one of the one of the main selling points that that the opposition campaign for Prop 15 made uh, in in trying to get voters to vote no.
0: Ricardo, what does this mean for the future of Prop 15, whether this passes or not? You know, right now it's looking like it might not. But does the fact that this is so close provide an opening for people who may want to keep trying to change Prop 13?
6: Yeah, um, you know, I tuned into a virtual press conference that the, the Yes campaign had uh, late into the night on election night. And that's something that they were uh, kind of alluding to, right? The fact that this is a fairly close race um, is indicative of just the the grassroots support that um, they say they were able to uh, kind of coalesce around the measure. Um, you know, again, it's it's hard to um, delineate how much of the outcome was, you know, the fact that you're uh, trying to make changes to the sacred cow in state government versus, um, you know, voters' appetites for education funding and spending. But, um, you know, I don't think, before this, there were education advocacy groups representing school boards, re- representing superintendents, uh, really nudging the legislature and the governor to um, put forth a, a an education-specific tax measure that would have raised um, more money than what Prop. Fifteen, um, you know, had earmarked. And I don't see that appetite um, and and persistence going away, especially uh, when we look at what the, what the financial picture uh, could be in the next few years for schools.
1: Well, Ricardo, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really uh, important topic and I'm sure we'll be talking more again about how schools are doing as we move forward.
6: Thank you so much.
1: You know, that was so many things to think about and to look ahead on. So I think we should just let people think about it uh, for the next week and we'll see how things really turn out in the next few days.
0: Yeah, that helped me figure out a little bit about what's going on. So hopefully all of you feel the same. We will be here next week to offer even more clarity. And just one quick ask, if these conversations are useful to you, please visit Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to California State of Mind. Give us a rate and a review and tell us what you think.
1: Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week.
0: California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor.
1: Chris Bruno and Margarita Noriega are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong.
0: Dave Lesher is Cal matters editor and Joe Barr is cap radios chief of content make
1: sure you don't miss any episodes hit that subscribe button it's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode That's all for now.